Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And here we are, talking about a full franchise for you today. We are. And this started as a request from one of our listeners since the beginning, Jason. Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. Owner of Delicious Hot Sauces. Jason D's Hot Sauce. Check it out on Instagram. But he requested Body Snatchers 1993, which we watched and then decided, you know what? Let's just also talk about the other movies as well. It feels like it just kind of lent itself to one of the episodes where we talk about a couple movies, a little bit about the franchise. So that's what we're here with today, focusing primarily on two of the four movies in the franchise, Body Snatchers 1993 as requested, and then also The Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1978. Yes, but there are four installments in this franchise, and the franchise is said to have inspired a lot of other works, one of which we covered in our first few episodes, 1999's The Faculty. So if you were interested in that concept, the body snatching concept, then you're going to love this. So the concept itself is based off a 1954 novel by Jack Finney, and the first installment in the movie franchise came in 1956, the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And I'm just going to go over some basic premise of what pod people are. We're going to be talking a lot about pod people and the basic premise of the movie, because once the installments start building on each other, I think that there's some knowledge that carries on between the installments that will help you if you know the basic premise of the original. So essentially, the basic premise of Invasion of the Body Snatchers We follow a doctor and he starts seeing all of these patients that are saying that the people in their lives are not who they know them to be anymore. They are devoid of emotion. They are devoid of individuality. They are just waking up different. You know, it causes some paranoia, causes some hysteria. And then you come to find out later in the movie that aliens have (laughs) invaded Earth and placed these pods next to sleeping people that while these people sleep, this pod or this, it's almost like a cocoon or like, it looks like a pea pod. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And while this person sleeps, an alien takes over (laughs) the characteristics of the sleeping human and then hatches to live that person's life. They have all of their memories, all of their mannerisms, but they are just devoid of humanity. And then the pod person replaces said human being. And there's different iterations between the installments of what happens to the OG person. Sometimes they disintegrate to dust. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they melt. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they're killed. Sometimes they're just there also. Oh. In the original, I think it's kind of like that. Okay. But essentially, the idea is that these pod people, these aliens that are masquerading as real humans, take over the lives of these OG human beings. And the motivation is because these aliens recognize that, A, because I think their home planet is inhospitable, which comes from the book. But by taking away the humanity of these OG human beings, they can achieve a simple, stress-free, and superior world. There would be no conflict. There would be no war. There would be no hatred. There would be no violence because everyone would be devoid of individuality, thus difference. There's a quote that kind of carries through the series from the original, and it's, you'll be born again into an untroubled world free of love, desire, ambition, and faith. So all of those things are good things and the things that we love about humanity, but they can also cause conflict. 
So the whole movie is this Dr. Bennell running around trying to like stop this thing from happening. And the ending is ambiguous. He finally gets other doctors in a neighboring town to alert the FBI. But is it too late? And we're kind of left on that cliffhanger. So that's the original premise that we're working off of when we get to the 1978 remake, which we'll talk about a little bit more in detail, updating some of the transformation, updating obviously some of the effects, then 93's Body Snatchers updates the setting and how the transformation occurs. There's a lot more body horror in that one. And then I'm going to touch on 2007's The Invasion, because we're not going to talk about that one at length, but that is the most recent installment in this franchise, or said to have been inspired by this franchise. So the main difference from that one is that instead of pods, it is a fungus that is transported back from outer space after a NASA shuttle crashes back to Earth after a space expedition. Oh. So instead of there being legitimate pods, it's just an airborne virus. Think like, I don't know, COVID or (laughs) the flu or something like that. Mm -hmm. And you see pod people acting a lot more aggressive because we see pod people being more passive in terms of how they act in all of the installments. But in 2007, they're actively infecting others by like, puking into their mouths and like trying to like i know it's it's a little gross but then trying to like spread their contagion so that when they do fall asleep they become a pod person via infection in your brain essentially oh gosh that one i'm really glad that we did not watch that one that sounds awful i haven't heard very good things about it so i don't think we're missing very much but the pod people take over the OG body. So there is no growing of a secondary oh. body. It's just kind of like a brain thing. And this one is actually interesting because it shows the consequences of a sanitized population. So you kind of get a little bit further down the line as to when most of humanity looks like this. And violence does drop. World peace is achieved. Like there is no conflict. So it begs this question of would this actually be so bad? They view humanity a lot more cynically than I think the original few iterations do in terms of, yeah, having difference is a good thing where this one shows, hey, we're not at war anymore and everyone's productive and this is great. So like, what the fuck's going on? Huh. But at the end of this one, a vaccine is created and distributed because there is a child in the movie that has a brain condition and thus is immune to the fungus so they use him to create a vaccine and bring everybody back, there essentially. There's a lot going on in that movie. Yeah, I haven't heard, again, I haven't heard very good things about it, but it does kind of take a little bit more of a cynical approach, but also like a down the line approach. Like a lot of these movies take place as the initial infection is happening or the initial body snatching is happening. But 2007 kind of takes that question and goes 10,000 feet in the air and is like, would this actually be so bad? And then also just takes the whole medical horror side of things. Like think movies like Contagion, for example, where it's like, there's a virus that's killing everybody and that. So yeah, it stars Nicole Kidman. She's in it. Oh, seriously? She is. Yeah. Okay. And fucking uh, whoever plays James Bond. Oh. You know his face. I know his face. I can see his eyes. Daniel Craig. Yes. Nicole Kidman and Daniel Craig are in this. So very interesting. So that's kind of the 10,000 foot view of the franchise. But if you've seen this idea before, it's because it's said to inspire a lot of other works. So we've already talked about the faculty, 
Halloween 3 Season of the Witch employs a very similar thing. Elise is looking at me crazy. So, is that like in the Halloween franchise? Yes. What? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so for the uninitiated, <laughs> after the first two Halloweens, Somebody, I don't think it was John Carpenter, but some, or maybe it was, I don't know, but somebody decided to take the Halloween franchise and be like, okay, we've had enough Michael Myers, let's offshoot and make Halloween, the franchise, an anthology almost, where every movie is about something different. Okay. So they had the first two that are focused on, you know, Laurie Strode and Michael Myers. And then the third one has nothing to do with Michael Myers. It's about these Halloween masks that kids put on and it overtakes them. The mask starring Jim Carrey. It's kind of like that, but it's just like, it's it's more of like a mass hypnosis. Oh. Like there's three iconic masks that, you know, you'll see around Halloween time that come from this movie and it kind of like crushes these kids' brains and like all the, it's, it's, Ew. yeah, it's, it's a kind of about that idea of depersonalization has nothing to do with Michael Myers, but yes, Halloween three season of the witch. Okay. 2019 has a movie called Assimilated, which is very similar. And then there's actually an Apple plus TV series from 2021 called Invasion that also has a very similar aspect i love how over the years words have just been dropped from the title (laughs) it's like the invasion of the body snatchers the body snatchers invasion (laughs) it's like we're slowly the invasion yeah the invasion the invasion invasion. and then invasion yeah (laughs) we got it done in one just like we gotta keep their attention we gotta we gotta we gotta keep it moving So I'm going to provide some historical context for the 1956 film just to kind of set the stage for some of these larger themes of depersonalization that we're already touching on. So this comes from a scholar, Andrew Howe, from Monstrous Flora, Dangerous Cinematic Plants in the Cold War Era, which I want to read all of that. That sounds amazing. Monstrous Flora? You had me at Monstrous Flora. (laughs) (laughs) And this is coming from like a Wikipedia summary. Andrew Howe argued that the 1956 film presented the pod people as a metaphor for communism, as the pod people appear to have a sort of collective mind whose precise workings are not explained. In the 1950s, Americans tended to associate communism with collectivism and their own nation with individualism. The pod people have absolutely no sense of individualism, instead being soulless duplicates of people who once existed with no personalities and emotions, which reflected popular American stereotypes in the 1950s of life in communist nations. The way that the pod people insist that their triumph is both necessary and inevitable is a parody of Marxism with its insistence that class conflict will inevitably end with the destruction of capitalism and the triumph of socialism in the form of governing decisions by the proletariat. The manner in which pod people outwardly resemble the people that they have replaced but are completely empty and soulless reflected the viewpoint that communist regimes have destroyed the real nations that previously existed before they came to power and replaced the authentic national identities and cultures with something artificial and profoundly distasteful. Likewise, the particular place where the pods have landed is in a small town in rural California, meaning that Americans are the ones being targeted for replacement by the pod people, which served as a metaphor for how many Americans felt threatened by communism, whose triumph was widely feared to be marking the end of the real America. That is very interesting. I mean, I feel like you could flip this on its head and say, well, maybe capitalism is the government structure that voids folks of their individuality and power and decision making, right? I feel like there's so many ways to look at some of these structures and then people respectively being cogs in the machine. 
Yeah, and I think that's something that the 78 remake actually does well because it shifts the fear because we're out of the Cold War at that point to more of an idea of consumerism yeah. and capitalism. Uh-huh. So it's definitely interesting how these movies have still been able to reflect national fears, but still have this idea that emotions and individuality and desire get in the way of these systems. Right. I can see how this formula has endured because it really kind of is something you can put over a lot of times in our history and make it work based on what's going on. Are you ready to hear about 1978 plot? Hit me with it. (laughs) Okay. I'm not going to zoom through this, but we're going to zoom through this. So we open in the 1978, the invasion of the body snatchers with little cotton candy clouds floating towards planet Earth. (laughs) I thought they were jellyfish. (laughs) Well, I thought at first they looked like cotton candy, but they do become more gelatinous once they kind of hit the ground. So at first I was like, ooh, (laughs) but then it got a little gross. So we follow these things landing on Earth and eventually see them bloom into a flower. And we see people start picking these flowers. It looks like maybe it's springtime. And one of the women that picks a flower is Elizabeth Driscoll. She is a laboratory scientist in San Francisco at the health department. And she gets home, tells her hubby, Jeffrey, that the plant she found might be a Grex, like a hybrid plant. And she thinks it might be dangerous. And our girl, Elizabeth, is played by Brooke Adams. She is also in movies like The Dead Zone, The Unborn, The Stuff. So even though she says the plant might be dangerous, that doesn't stop them from sleeping right next to it, which I think is (laughs) pretty funny. On Jeff's side. (laughs) The hallow. Remember when he fucking gets that fungus and it's like, this looks like it's, you know, that that it's unprecedented. Let me go pick up my infant. No one's reacting. With it on its hands. No one's reacting the right way. So then we cut to a scene where we meet our guy, Matthew Bennell. And you've heard his name before. I think it's the same name from the 1956 version. He's a health inspector. We see him kind of doing his thing at a French restaurant. And I have to say, when I went back over these notes before we recorded, I realized that I wrote Mr. Bennett for everything. Mm. And it's definitely because the actor who plays Mr. Bennell in this movie is Donald Sutherland. And he plays Mr. Bennett in the Pride and Prejudice 2005 remake. So I was fully calling him Mr. Bennett the whole time. Maybe wishful thinking. Maybe we should cover Pride Pride. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> He's also President Snow in The Hunger Games. Oh, yes. That's how, I was like, where do I know his fucking face? Yeah. Fucking President Snow. Yeah, he can really play a lot of different roles. He can be so endearing, but also so sinister. So the next day, Elizabeth goes into work. Benel wants her to run some samples on what he found at this French restaurant. But, you know, she is upset because Jeff was acting weird. He was actually cleaning things up instead of watching sports games all day on the TV. And he didn't seem as silly and lighthearted. He was much more serious. And he was in a suit, which just is not Jeff. Later that day, Elizabeth tries to talk to Jeff. He's still acting weird. This is where we get the dialogue. Jeffrey is not Jeffrey. And this is kind of something that continues throughout the movie. Next day, this is one of those movies that's like day, night, day, night, day, (laughs) night. So the next day, Matthew starts noticing some weird things. When he drops off his whatever at the dry cleaner, one of the men working there says kind of the same dialogue. My wife is not my wife. So he's like, hmm. So he tries to call Elizabeth to let her know, but there's no answer. And later she shows up at work late crying. Turns out she followed Jeff around all day, saw him having weird meetings with people she's never seen before. 
there's kind of the sense that there's like a secret society situation. She doesn't understand what's going on. So Matthew's like, look, I know a guy. His name is David Kidner, who is the worst. I hate him. He's like the kind of psychologist that would be like, pow, pow, snap out of it. <laughs> you know, I feel like he's one step away from just doing that. Pow, pow, go kiss your mother on the lips. Like, like just so- <laughs> <laughs> Is that a line he says? No, but like, oh. it's like very forty and very like, oh, you, so you know, strange. it's just kind of like, <laughs> go kiss your mother on the lips. <laughs> so he just so happens, David Kibner happens to be giving a presentation on his new stupid book. So Elizabeth and Matthew jump in their little car, go to the presentation. But this is where they see a hysterical civilian get hit by a car. And then all of the surrounding civilians just kind of look at his body with no emotion. Fun fact about this scene. Okay. This actor is the original actor from the 1956 <gasps> Invasion of the Body Snatchers. He plays Benel in the first one. Oh my god! And he is replicating a scene toward the end of the 56 movie where he is standing in the middle of the street pulling, and I know what you did last summer, <laughs> and screaming like, they're coming, they're coming for you next, they're here, they're already here, they're coming for you. And he's doing the same thing in the middle of this street. Trying to, but trying to like alert Elizabeth and Matthew being like, they're already here, but he dies in this one. So it's kind of talking about like his effort to warn people that these pod people are coming goes unsuccessful. Oh man, very troubling. We are seeing again, this behavior on a wider scale, right? Like it went from the flashbacks of Elizabeth seeing Jeff talking to a couple people in a little circle to maybe 20 or 30 onlookers just completely void of emotion looking at this man's dead body. So they arrive at the presentation in what appears to be a local bookshop. And this for me is where (laughs) (laughs) this is (laughs) so many strange things start happening after this point and not even in the way that you would think based on the plot. There's too many settings going on. Okay. So we're at a bookstore. This is where we meet Jack Belichick, who is a friend of Matthew's. He's an aspiring writer. He's played by Jeff Goldblum. Inside, Elizabeth continues to notice emotionless people, including a woman who's insisting her husband is not her husband. So again, this is continuing. She eventually gets to talk to the psychiatrist and he convinces her that everything is fine. He is theorizing that Elizabeth is using the belief that Jeffrey is behaving differently as an excuse to interrupt the relationship or stir the pot. And he says, quote, it's like there's some sort of hallucinatory flu going around. So very much of the mindset that nothing is actually wrong and that people are, are just imagining things. Pow, pow, snap out of it. The next scene, this is, okay, the mud bath (laughs) scene. So apparently Jack Belichick and his wife Nancy own and operate a mud bath house. So like picture, you know, like a room with these in-ground tile tubs filled with mud. You know what it reminds me of? Our freshman year dorm room's (laughs) bathroom had a bathtub in a closet in the bathroom. (laughs) Which no one touched. Which no one touched. It's like, it looks like that bath. Yes. It's very unsettling, very unsettling. It seems like it's a booming business. We get a nice scene of a man getting out of his tub and then getting a belly massage (laughs) by Nancy. But, you know, she is doing her thing and... Nancy's the best character in this fucking movie. She is the beautiful surprise. At this point, I needed Nancy. And she (laughs) delivered and she keeps delivering. 
Anyway, later, after she's done massaging this man, she is going around cleaning up and she finds like a gooey, fuzzy duplicate of her husband, Jack, behind one of like the curtained cubicles. And Jack is there. He had been dozing off in one of the mud baths, but he's awake now. They call Matthew. Matthew comes over. He's like, this is weird. He goes to Elizabeth's apartment to warn her. He had previously dropped her off. But when he finds her... Well, he has to break in, right? Because Jeff, we know Jeff is weird. Jeff is no good. Can't be trusted. Cannot be trusted. He breaks in. He finds her nippleless duplicate body incubating among the plants, which also I don't know why they have a greenhouse just off their bedroom. Their master bedroom has like a greenhouse in it. Did they have that or was that showing the supremacy of the plants? Oh. Because there's a scene too in the mud house Nancy's playing this music and the guy's like, can you just turn this music off? And she's like, no, it's good for the plants. Oh. So I'm wondering if the plants have just kind of taken over and Jeff is like letting that happen because he is a pod person. But it also does kind of look like a greenhouse. Yeah, it is really. And I know that she likes plants. But yeah, I mean, it's like a master bedroom with a bathroom and a greenhouse. (laughs) It's like a very interesting layout. But anyway... Matthew scoops up the real Elizabeth from her bed and sneaks out, avoiding Jeff as he comes back in to check on the duplication process. So as Matthew gets her into his car, Jeff screams upon finding Elizabeth missing. So meanwhile, the body at the mud house, Jack's duplicate body goes missing. Kibner comes over, which I don't understand why everybody calls Kibner. He has been called to the mud house, but he obviously doesn't see Jack's duplicate because it's missing. He tries to tell Jack and Nancy that they're crazy, basically, but Nancy is not having it. She knows what she saw, and she's not about to let Kibner gaslight her. She says, quote, you are trying to make us believe we're seeing things. Why are you doing that? End quote, which I love. And then it's the question, is Kibner a pod person? Yes, he is super suspicious. And then the police arrive at Elizabeth's house. And then that's when we find out her duplicate is missing too. So not looking good. So this is when Elizabeth deduces that the flowers are involved. And she is examining it the next day at the health department. She can't find any records of this flower. It's completely foreign. So definitely a red flag. Matthew tries to alert several government agencies that something is going on. Like nobody is listening. So I guess this is like the 1956 version that ends with maybe somebody listening. But in this movie, he cannot get anybody to listen. We're getting the sense that the government is pushing the story down because they don't want to deal with it. It's not like we don't believe you. It's stop talking about this. Right. Which is like, have they been getting other similar tips from other people? Or are they taken over by pod people already? Right. So definitely unnerving. So that night, Matthew and his friends stay together at his place and Dr. Kibner is there for a little bit and he gives Elizabeth a sleeping aid, which is not good because we know they get you when they sleep, but he doesn't stay. Then all of them, so Nancy, Jack, Matthew, and Elizabeth are nearly duplicated as they sleep. Nancy comes outside to find Matthew kind of dozing off in a lawn chair, and she sees that all of their duplicates are growing like little pumpkins outside in front of Matthew's feet. Super fucking weird. So she screams and wakes Matthew up. He wakes up, tries to call the police, but the police know who he is already on the phone, which nowadays isn't weird because they can trace your phone number and all that stuff. But at the time, very unnerving. That's when they know the police are also kind of taken over. The four of them escape after Matthew bashes his duplicate's face in. Oh, by the way, 
Matthew and Elizabeth have some serious chemistry. Yeah, they flirty. Mm, they are so flirty. And he almost kills her duplicate first. I guess it's the closest one, but he can't. I don't think he can bear to bash her beautiful face. And, um, so he does his own. And then, yeah, they have to run away. They ran out of time. This is where we see the duplicates start to emit a shrill scream anytime they sense a human or somebody who has not been turned. So this will come into play in the 1993 version as well. Pretty iconic. So cue, chase scene, whatever, blah, blah, blah. At one point, Nancy and Jack are separated. They do a diversion to save Matthew and Elizabeth. Matt and Liz make it to the health department. They share a kiss around 2 a.m. It's beautiful, but it's also so sad. They're hiding. They spot duplicates outside who come in and try to force them to change. This is where we find out that Jack has been duplicated. I know, very sad. But this is also, you know, we find Kibner, Jeffrey is here. So all of these familiar faces just twisting the knife, twisting the knife. But because, conveniently... Matthew and Elizabeth had just taken a dose of speed that one of their coworkers keeps in his desk. <laughs> no problem. They, they do not succumb to the sedatives right away because they're kind of compromised. So they end up locking Kibner in the fridge. Jeffrey had left. I don't know where he went. And then they kill Jack. As they run out, they run into Nancy. She has figured out to pretend that you're emotionless and dull in order to avoid the pod. So she tells them to do the same. And she wants to find Jack, but they don't tell her that he's already gone. They So they let her. It's so sad. I just wrote NANCY in all caps because I felt so bad. So they follow her example, but Elizabeth blows her cover when... <laughs> Is this a dog? <laughs> Oh my god, I saw screenshots of this. They see a random mutant dog with a human face. I don't know where it came from, you never see it again. It's giving Nightmare on Elm Street 2 with those weird dogs and the masks. Free them from Elm Street. But I think, (laughs) because I remember watching a video on the franchise, which I've linked in the notes, but... I think because you get a scene earlier of, it's that guy with the banjo, right? Like the, you see him playing music. Oh, He's I like a busker throughout the movie. Yeah. Okay. Cause, cause Matthew walks by him to work every day. He's like this busker. Oh. It's like this homeless guy with his dog. And you see that somehow one of their pots had gotten broken. So they ended up morphing oh, together. Ew. Oh, I understand now. Okay. That makes more sense. Oh, I hate it. <laughs> but, but Elizabeth screams. I really can't blame her. But then, of course, the pod people are alerted that they are indeed human. So they are chasing them again. They make it to the pier where Elizabeth and Matthew discover. There had been kind of moments of this earlier, but they see this elaborate operation to distribute pods outside of California around the world. Elizabeth fucks up her ankle by doing something dumb. And so Matthew kind of leaves her just to try to look and see if they can get aboard one of these ships and get out of there. But when he gets back to her, he finds that she has fallen asleep and been duplicated. And he holds her and she disintegrates in his arms, which is very sad because she makes it so far. So he is devastated, obviously, because he was very much in love with her. He tells her that he loves her before she disintegrates. So then he commences going to the warehouse, setting everything on fire. But also this warehouse is giving like, I'm getting married in the year 2016 because there are string lights. And then like these beautiful, like white sheer drapes on the ceiling. I'm like, what is it? Like clearly somebody's wedding got interrupted. What's your rate? Yeah. What's your rate? Like, "Mm, I got to get to this warehouse. Like as soon as these pods are out of here, like I got to get in here. Boiler room wedding. (laughs) 
So he sets everything on fire, kills a bunch of pod people and fucks up a bunch of pods. And then he makes it under the pier and the scene kind of closes on him trying to avoid the pod people above looking for him. Soon after, you know, that scene fades out, we come back, we see Matthew. He is returning to work at the health department, being very void of emotion, moving deliberately, whatever. And we see the duplicated employees. Elizabeth's duplicate is there. We witness several school children being taken for duplication off the school bus. Very sad. After work, I guess Matthew heads towards City Hall and he encounters Nancy. Nancy is still alive. She calls to him, but then Matthew points at her and screams. And that's when we realize that he's a duplicate and he didn't make it. And he, oh God, alerts everyone that Nancy is a human. And then the movie closes on Nancy, now probably being the only fucking human left in the city, screaming helplessly. Yeah, so that was my question. Like, how did Matthew and Nancy get... So she went off to look for Jack. So when they were reunited and she told them to stay calm, (laughs) they got separated again when Elizabeth screamed and blew their cover. So Nancy separated, but Matthew stayed with Elizabeth. Okay, so we're presuming that she's just been navigating this world. Yes. Very, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And we don't know how much time has passed. It's just a no, dissolve. I'm assuming this is like the next day. Oh, okay. This is like the day after everything on the pier. Oh, okay. That's okay. my assumption. But you're right. It could have been a couple days. But also, there are so many times in this movie that I try not to get hung up on. When people all of a sudden decide that they're going to trust strangers which is crazy to me. Like at one point, Elizabeth and Matthew get in a taxi cab and I'm like, you can't trust anybody because of course the taxi driver gives in a call and alerts other pod people that he has two humans in his car. And then also Nancy is so much smarter than this. Even if she saw Matthew, why would you yell his name? A, you don't know where he's been. And B, what about all the people around you hearing you calling his name? Like they would see that you are still human, that you still have these emotions of like joy, relief, right? Right. So it's just the ending is good in that you're just totally busted over Matthew being a pod person now. But it doesn't really quite make sense because I don't think Nancy, based on what we have seen from her, would actually do something like that. Especially because when she was reunited with Elizabeth and Matthew, she kept her guys. She was the one who initiated that you need to act to Mm -hmm. be safe. So like, Mm -hmm. why are you blowing it now? But we are Nancy Stans here. We are fucking Nancy Stans. She's amazing. And quickly, she's played by Veronica Cartwright, who she's in a lot of horror stuff, which is why I like wanted to mention it. She's in Alien, which is fucking awesome. We want to cover that. Mm -hmm. Um, She's in the Candyman sequel. So Candyman Farewell to Flesh. She's in Scary Movie 2. And she's also in 2007's The Invasion. Oh my god, that's awesome. She plays like a different role, but it's kind of like a nice little cameo because she obviously was in this one and she plays a different role in the 2007, which is great. But yeah, like you were saying, the ending of this one is a lot more bleak than the original is. Ends with that screech and the idea that, okay, the world is gone. The world is being taken over. And there's a quote in this movie that is meant to come back from the original, but there's differences in it. And I wanted to point it out. So if we remember the quote from the original that kind of talks about the pop people's motivations is, you'll be born again into an untroubled world free of love, desire, ambition, and faith. But the quote in 1978 is, you'll be born again into an untroubled world free of anxiety, fear, and hate. So it's creating a dichotomy there where it's like, okay, this original is talking about all of these things that individuality champions, but then this remake is saying, 
this is what the good has to look like, because without these things, you can achieve a better world. It's even the idea that the first thing that we see the pod Matthew doing is going back to the system, is being a producer, is being mm. capitalistic. So mm-hmm. I wanted to read a little more historical context for the 1978 version, because obviously this is a remake. It's taken from the 56. But the context in which this came out is obviously very different from the 50s. So this is coming from a scholar, Christian Knopfler, in his work, The Monster Always Returns, American Horror Films and Their Remakes. And this also comes from a Wikipedia summary. Christian Knopfler noted that the film was in many ways a lamentation for the end of the counterculture in the 1960s that was especially associated with San Francisco, which is where this takes place. Philip Kaufman, who's the director, has described the 1960s as a brief moment of time where Americans woke up from the conforming, other-directed life that he views as characteristic of American life. Both the characters of Matthew and Elizabeth appear to be ex-hippies who have abandoned their youthful, utopian dreams sometime in the 1970s by going to work for the city of San Francisco as health inspectors, thereby becoming part of the system, which foreshadows both characters' replacement by the pod people. The film argues that people in the 1970s San Francisco were already living in disengaged states, having shallow relationships with other people, instinctively seeking distance from any problems, and being so preoccupied with consumerism that this allows the pod people to take over San Francisco without much of the population noticing what is going on. Yeah, that's so true. Notably... When the running man tries to warn Matthew and Elizabeth, they shun him as a nuisance. When the running man is killed by the pod people, Matthew and Elizabeth do not stop their car and instead drive on to Dr. Kibner's party to avoid being late, blithely trusting that the authorities will handle the incident. At the party, Dr. Kibner tells Elizabeth, you want to shut your feelings off, withdraw, maybe make believe that it wasn't happening because then you don't have to deal with it. A diagnosis that she admits is an accurate summary of her issues with Jeffrey. It is not clear if Dr. Kibner is a pod duplicate or not at this point in the film, and accordingly, it is impossible to judge if this is a sincere statement or an attempt to keep Elizabeth from learning the truth. Regardless, the film does argue that a trend toward emotional disengagement and apathy was already prevalent in San Francisco that prefigures the state of being a pod person who have no feelings at all. Though the pod people are aliens, the film maintains that the state of being a pod person is merely pushing present trends in American life to their logical extremes. Wow. I never thought about Matthew and Elizabeth's jobs being foreshadowing. Mm -hmm. And also they do, not only in that scene where the running man tries to warn people and gets killed, do they trust the authorities, but they try to call the police at least two other times in the movie. And even when they are failed, they still put trust in that system, which is interesting. And quickly on Nancy being a queen, just because she's the best. (laughs) So essentially, we see her being the person that points out, what if it's aliens? And it's Mm -hmm. meant to read as very eccentric. But there's actually a quote that kind of talks about this being kind of normal for the time. So for the Belichicks, the revelation of an inhuman, all-encompassing conspiracy that enforces mindless conformity is hardly a paradigm shift. It is a world they are already living in. Consequently, the Belichicks, Nancy in particular, adopt the new situation rather quickly. Noticeably, Nancy's esoteric UFO beliefs allow her to be the first character to deduce the origins of the pod people and what they are doing, though in the end, the countercultural background of the Belichicks only proves to a marginal advantage as they cannot escape assimilation by the pods. They just see it coming. Yeah, because they do have a very different lifestyle than Elizabeth and Matthew. Yeah. They're, you know, Jack's a writer, poet. Nancy runs this mud house, (laughs) right? So it is definitely different. Oh my gosh. Wow. Okay. Interesting. So the 93 version, 
I can speed through this if you want. Let's, let's fucking do it. So primary deviations from the 1978-1956 remakes is the shift in setting, first of all. So the first two films take place in small towns. Well, one's in a small town in California and one's in a big city in California. Mm-hmm. Now this is in an army base. I don't know if it's in California, but it's <laughs> on an army base. So it's a very much more walls are closing in type of setting. And we do not have Matthew Bennell as our main character. We instead have Marty, who is the daughter of a research scientist who is being brought on to this military base to do research on some of the things that they've found, I think. Chemicals. Barrels of chemicals. Lots of chemicals. <laughs> Right before they arrive, we get a scene that's very emblematic of the franchise at this point, where there is a crazy man running around trying to warn them that you're next, something's coming, da-da-da, but this happens at a gas station bathroom and not in the middle of the street, so, And it's much more threatening, right? Because he kind of pins her against the wall in the bathroom. Yeah, it's very assaulty, we don't Mm -hmm. like it, you know, warns her, they get you when you sleep, all that kind of stuff, so she's like, all right, what the fuck is this? (laughs) So her dad is Steve, he's with the EPA, and he is going to work on this military base, and they are going with Carol, who is Marty's stepmother, and their son, her brother, Andy. Marty gets there, she's brooding, she's, (laughs) you know, she doesn't want to fucking be there, I wouldn't want to be there either. Marty's played by Gabrielle Anwar, who is also in Burn Notice and The Manor. So she goes on a walk, and she gets into... (laughs) (laughs) Into a car with, like, this lesbian biker babe, Jen, (laughs) who I, like, fuck it. Her character cracks me up. She's got a mullet. She doesn't look like she belongs there. She's played by Christine Elise, who is known primarily for her work in the Chucky franchise. She's in a bunch of the Chucky installments. Oh, okay. Yeah. So She looks just like a young Kate McKinnon. She really does. They go driving around... Through this, we get context that Jen's mom's an alcoholic. She's kind of raising herself. Andy, the little boy, is having nightmares. Doesn't want to go to sleep. You know, giving very nightmare on Elm Street. But Steve is running tests on these chemicals. This general who's around, who's played by Forrest Whitaker, doesn't... (laughs) Oh, yes! He's in this. Whatever. (laughs) Doesn't seem to like that he's doing these tests and he's really interrogating him about... Can this cause toxic effects? Because there's a lot of people in the firmary that are afraid to sleep. They're becoming delusional. They won't talk to their families. They want to know if these chemicals have caused anything. So, okay, we got some problems on the military base. We get a scene of Andy in daycare. They're all asked to draw a picture of something. And Andy's the only one who doesn't draw like the identical picture to all the other kids in the class. So we're like, ooh, okay, like this shit's already starting. These Mm. duplicates are already starting. Andy's the only one with some individuality. And he fucking knows it. He tries to escape saying, I'm running away from the bad people, but this guy named Tim finds him and brings him home. Tim could be a pod person because he doesn't fucking emote anything. <laughs> he has no personality. No personality. <laughs> but but Marty thinks he's cute. So Jen knocks for Marty. She looks gay as fuck. And they decide to go to <laughs> Top Gun, which is the name of the military base bar where they see Tim. There's some kerfuffle in the bar where we start to see that maybe some pod people are taking some emotional people out of the bar, but it just is framed as a bar fight. So we're like, all right, whatever. Tim and Marty go on a walk. Marty talks about how her mom died. They play Never Have I Ever. They kiss. (laughs) They're missing turns again. We're still missing turns on these kisses. (laughs) Very nice. 
We get a scene in a foggy bog where the military men are lifting pods out of the bog. Mm-hmm. So are they in on it? Are, were they facilitating this? Or were they just the first people to get infected by this? We don't know, but they are involved. Andy wakes up from a nightmare and goes to wake up Carol, but her fucking face collapses. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And then her body double walks out from the closet naked. That is something that is similar to the 1978. The real bodies in both movies crumble to dust. And we also see, keep seeing these scenes where people are taking out like slightly full bags of trash, which now we know is just crumpled up ashes. Yeah. In this franchise, the trash trucks are booked and busy. They're always <laughs> picking up these bodies. Here's what I want to know. What? How come the pod people know already when the trash is coming? <laughs> How do they know what to do? How do they know? Well, that's where I'm a little confused because it's like they at least know enough to know that like, oh, this is my wife. This is my child. This is my stepdaughter that I do not like, like all this kind of stuff. So it's like they know enough to know that they need to be relational with these people, but not enough to be authentic. So where's the line? They must hit up the sanitation workers first so that the trash trucks are always coming around because like that's where they must go first. Andy runs away saying, she's not my mommy. My mommy's dead. And Steve's like, what the fuck, son? What the fuck is going on? (laughs) But yeah, we see clone Carol the next day handing off trash to these trash men. Again, booked and busy. Steve is working with more chemicals. There's some toxic barrels that fall all over the place and explode. So does that mean things are getting spread even further? Don't know. Marty goes to go hang out with Jen again, and they notice that her mom isn't drinking and she's going to play bridge, which again, very opposite to her normal ways of being. So, okay, what the fuck is going on? There's another, oh my God, I've never seen anything like this before scene where Steve is collecting toxic waste from this explosion and is being like, this is unprecedented. So I guess these are like the flowers kind of. I was going to say, like, they don't really make it clear that the stuff in the barrels is related unless maybe there are pods already in the barrels. I don't know, but uh, yeah. Marty pulls a Nancy from Nightmare on Elm Street, takes a snooze in the tub, and then an hairy pod from the ceiling (laughs) starts sprouting tentacles that reach down through the ceiling, crawl over her chest (gasps) out from under the water, and go up her nose and into her mouth. (gasps) So this is us seeing... In the first two iterations, there hasn't been necessarily, like, tentacles or really, like, a connection point between, like, the pod and the person, right? Or is there in the in, 78? In the 78 version, when Matthew dozes off and then all four of them kind of pop up in the yard, okay. we do see the tentacles reach up and touch his hand. But it's not as, I think, visceral as this one. Because this one's definitely sexual. It's definitely yes. very mm-hmm. assaulty. And this pod is like lighting up as it's like drinking her. Ew, yeah. Essentially. LEDs. <laughs> the pods are getting upgrades. <laughs> So the clone is starting to form in the fucking ceiling. And we also see that Steve is being taken over while Carol watches. So like, oh my God, these little alien embryos are growing. The fucking ceiling caves in and Marty is waken up by her double falling on top of her, which it's like, who put the pod in the ceiling? Did Carol put the pod in the ceiling? I think it was earlier those workers came to drop off some quote unquote supplies for the dad. 
And then at one point, Marty finds them like upstairs in the bedroom. I think that was supposed to tell us that they were being suspicious or maybe planting some of these pods. That's the only thing I could think of for an explanation. But then it's like, the bathroom just seems like such a peculiar place. Like, do people sleep in there often? Like, so like, what did they think was going to happen? Like, the ceiling in the bathroom is a drop ceiling that's never going to hold the weight. The of whole, a whole human. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Steve and Marty are frantic. They're like, what the fuck is going on here? Because he has woken up from his sleep by the sound of Marty's double fucking falling through the ceiling. We get some really good dialogue from Carol, who is a duplicate at this point. She is a pod person. This is the stepmom. You know, Steve's like, oh my God, Carol, we have to go, not realizing that she's a pod person. And she's like, go where? What happened here is not an isolated incident. There's nowhere to hide because there's no one like you left. So some really on the nose dialogue. So Steve and the kids run out and we get the screech and point from Carol, which is very emblematic of the first two, which is really cool. And she's her face is scary. Like she does well. Yeah, she has some like sharp features that really kind of elevate this look. <laughs> yeah. And Carol's played by Meg Tilly. She's also in Psycho 2, a movie called Anti-Birth, which I'm really interested in watching after reading about it. Oh. And the show Bomb Girls. So they're chased by others who are summoned by the screech. Men with guns appear to try to cover them. But again, like we're on a military base, so we don't know who is good and who is bad because military dudes in the military are not supposed to emote generally. And conformity is like their thing. Everyone has to do everything the same. So it's kind of like, who can we trust? What the hell is going on? Tim is also being surrounded and chased by clones elsewhere. Steve hides Marty and Andy in a warehouse and tries to go look for help. He sneaks into the office to find the Major Collins, Forrest Whitaker, taking pills and freaking out. They overtake him. There's also some good dialogue here with Forrest Whitaker saying, you call what you are life, I know what you are. And then we have some opposition saying, when all things are conformed, there are no arguments. Abandon yourselves and join us. So again, much more on the nose in terms of like trying to spell out these themes for us. And the faculty does this well, too, with Mary Beth and the space slugs being like, you know, you won't be teased, you won't be this, you won't be that. So we have some of this very on-the-nose 90s dialogue. Major kills himself instead of being taken over as a pod person. Steve returns for the kids, or does he? Yeah, we don't know. We don't know. He drives away with them, but he's being unresponsive. He's saying, don't show any emotion, they can be fooled. So it's like, oh, okay, is he acting? Because we've seen this happen before. But Tim arrives after Marty makes him pull over and Marty shoots her father. And we don't know whether he was a pod person or not, but then he disintegrates. So he was a pod person. Yeah. Pretty intense scene, though, when she makes that call. Tim says, I'm going to go retrieve a chopper for us to escape because he is a helicopter pilot. That is his gig. Convenient. Very convenient. Goes, but is surrounded by the guys, but he's able to convince them because he is a man with no emotions that he is one of them. (laughs) But in the meantime, Marty and Andy are descended upon and taken to like a base to be converted. He chases them by a helicopter, which is like, all right, fine. (laughs) Um... So then we enter this triage center where active transformations are taking place. Marty's clone finishes. She's naked. And Tim just kind of like stares at her for a while, not really knowing what to do. But he instead disengages the tentacles from the real Marty, which wakes her up. And then the clone screams. Tim and Marty are able to escape. They walk out acting, not emoting. They pass by Jen. We don't know whether Jen's a clone or not, but Jen says, oh, I saw your brother because Andy and Marty had gotten separated at this point and Marty can't help herself. She's like, where is he? And then Jen screams and screeches and points at them. So it's like, ah. So they replaced the mutant man dog with 
I think I know where your brother is. For yes. <laughs> Essentially. Andy runs up from where? I don't know. He just finds them. They get into the chopper and Andy isn't Andy. Yeah, he's acting. This scene is so fucking funny. They're in the middle of the air, and Marty is wrestling her little brother. He's like six. I don't know. Yeah, that's perfect. And throws him out of this chopper, and you just see this long shot of this kid reaching up while he's falling out of a fucking helicopter, and it's the weirdest green screen looking thing ever. It's we laughed so fucking hard. It it is. It's so bad. It's so bad. And you're not ready for it. You're just, I wasn't ready for it to be so bad. <laughs> it looks like he's just like falling into like a volcano almost. It's so bad looking. Yeah. But yeah, throws her own brother out of a helicopter. Great. Then Tim and Marty go on a bomb spree where they start bombing the trucks that are leaving the military base because they are taking pods to try to, you know, spread the infection. But Tim is bombing all of them with this endless artillery he must have on this fucking chopper. And then the chopper lands and there's a quote that says, they get you when you sleep, but you can only stay awake for so long. And we don't know whether the guy that is like helping them land the chopper is a pod person or not. So again, this one ends very ambiguously. Tim destroys the trucks, but how far did they end up reaching? Is it too late? All of these types of things. So let's look at some 1993's context. So this is about the shift to a final girl, which Shay had mentioned earlier. So this is from an article titled The Monster Always Returns, American Horror Films and Their Remakes by Christian Knoppler. It reads, in many ways, the film tells an especially vicious coming-of-age narrative as Marty's family is destroyed, and at the end, all she has left is her boyfriend, Tim. Knoppler noted that Marty's family was highly dysfunctional to begin with, and her killing the pod versions of her family members reflected a tendency toward rejecting her own family that was already present even before she encountered the pod people. Knoppler noted that despite the strong female protagonist, that there is, quote, a noticeable undercurrent of monstrous femininity and sexuality in the film, as it is Carol and the other housewives at the army base are replaced first, and it is Carol who acts as the primary antagonist. The way that the pod version of Carol almost replaces Steve while trying to seduce him suggests a fear of women. Meg Tilly's performance as Carol evokes many of the stereotypes associated with malevolent femininity. Another example of a female antagonist is a short-lived pod version of Marty, who appears nude before Tim, and notably he hesitates for a moment before killing her to save the real Marty, a scene that Nopler sees as an expression of, quote, male sexual insecurity that reflects both a fear of and a desire for female bodies. There's that similar scene too in the 1978 version. Yeah. Knoppler also noted that the 1993 version actually showed the replacement progress with a scene where Apod forces its tendrils into Marty's body as she struggles against them, a scene that powerfully evokes rape. And I like Marty. I mean, she's kind of... She's pretty quiet. She's one note for sure, but I don't know because she does... Maybe I don't like Marty because... I don't know, because like I like her as a character, and I kind of like that they did adapt that final girl theme that the 90s were going really strong with, and especially the idea that a being taking over your body is a very sexual experience, and it is something that, you know, if we're making this an allegory to assault or to rape, like women experience far more often. 
So I think it's appropriate that we saw what that looks like. I mean, we had that in the 1978 with Elizabeth, and we did see that happening, but it was through Matthew's eyes. Mm. So I think it's important that we had Marty experiencing it just like on her own. Wow. And that Tim was a little bit more of a compliment to the action. Like he just drove the plot along where it was Matthew who was driving the plot along in the 1978 version. So I think I appreciated that. Yeah, that's a good point. I also with Marty and something we didn't mention is that there are, I think, two or three points at the film where there's a voiceover Mm. and Marty is kind of explaining, like, if I knew what was going to happen, I would have done so many things. Right. And I feel like there's kind of that element of what we talk about sometimes show versus tell. Mm -hmm. And I feel like with Marty, like there's too much relying on those voiceovers to really hear from her. And I wish that those were not there and that we could experience more of that in the action. Because I think voiceovers can fail so easily. And I think the voiceovers in this movie felt really corny. I feel like Marty could have had more lines or more experiences or something throughout the film that would have helped show a little bit more of what was going on with her. I don't know. It only would have worked if they had given us kind of like a cold open where we saw the aftermath and we kind of knew that she was going to be surviving and she's almost like retelling it. Like that would have made a little bit more sense. But yeah, we just get another ambiguous ending where her father and her brother and her stepmom are all dead and she's with this fucking military dude that she's known for like two weeks, which I guess is appropriate to the culture of military (laughs) people. But yeah. So this is historical context of what was going on in the 90s in terms of, you know, this is coming out, what's going on in the 90s versus the 50s and the 70s. So this is from Nopler again, argue that the film seemed to be a critique of modern American life as the pod people succeed in taking over the army base because of the military culture of conformity and succeed in replacing families because families are conformist, suggesting it was internal weakness already present that allowed their triumph and the pod invasion only intensifies pre-existing trends. Notably, the only characters who are not replaced are Tim and Marty, both of whom are nonconformists and rebels against conformist institutions, namely the military, in the case of Tim, and the family, in the case of Marty. Unlike other versions of the invasion of body snatchers, the Malone family is portrayed as dysfunctional and fractured at the start of the film, which was very far from the idealized nuclear families present in the 1956 version. Likewise, the only other family presented in the film, the Platt family, are just as dysfunctional with General Platt being a stern martinet, Mrs. Platt an alcoholic, and Jen a rebellious teenager who is openly contemptuous of her parents. Nopler noted that one can trace the perceived decline of the American family over the three versions of the invasion of the body snatchers. In the 1956 version, more or less happy nuclear families were presented as the norm. Early on in the 1978 version, the character of Dr. Kibner declares that the nuclear family is shot to hell. And the 1993 version, broken and dysfunctional families were presented as the norm. The fact that Carol is replaced first literalizes the resentment felt by Marty towards her stepmother, who has already invaded her family. Oh, my. That is so interesting, the themes of invasion being present before anybody's body is even snatched. Mm -hmm. Huh. Yeah. I mean, we do get dialogue from her. Like, she is not afraid to show her resentment towards her stepmother. Yeah. They have a very contentious relationship, for sure. Yeah, even though her and Steve are really cute in that one scene where they say, mucho kiss. (laughs) (laughs) I I know, I did skip that part. (laughs) Yeah, they do seem to have like a really, a really good relationship. But yeah, like, 
thinking about it from Marty, she's being uprooted from her life. She has this brother now that mm-hmm. she's kind of got to look after. That's like a physical embodiment of her mother not being there anymore, mm, if you think yeah. about it that way. So she's still his protector, but he still betrays her at the end. Yeah, he does. She really is on her own with Tim the Emotionless. So to round it out, there are two quotes from the two directors of the 56 and the 78 versions on pod people, essentially the idea of pod people. So American director Don Siegel, who directed the 56 version, stated that he saw the film as a parable about the eroding sense of individualism in American life, stating, many of my associates are certainly pods. Oh, my. They have no feelings. holding back no he's not they exist breathe sleep to be a pod means you have no passion no anger the spark has left you of course there's a very strong case for being a pod these pods who get rid of pain ill health and mental disturbances are in a sense doing good it happens to leave you in a very dull world but that by the way is the world most of us live in it's the same as people who welcome going into the army or prison There's regiment, a lack of having to make up your mind, face decisions. People are becoming vegetables. I don't know what the answer is except an awareness of it. That's what makes a picture like the invasion of the body snatchers important. Huh. So, I mean, it's almost like how to bring it to TikTok. Ooh. I've been seeing a lot of millennial awakenings, like millennials. So folks, perhaps just a little older than us. They were kind of like the product of that hustle culture where it's like hustle hard, do all of these things, Mm -hmm. all this kind of stuff. And now they're beginning to realize that essentially it's all for naught because capitalism is just going to keep pushing you down. I've been just seeing a lot of people who are like quitting their jobs and working for themselves or like they had their careers be their whole personalities. And now they're coming to terms with, wait, who the fuck am I? Because I was taught that doing this would make me successful, but now I don't know who I am. Mm -hmm. And also probably a lot of millennials are, you know, facing the reality that they have done all of these things that they have been taught to do. And it still doesn't mean much when you're still in loads of student debt and you can only afford to live in an apartment if you want to live in a house and you just can't or like the cost of living, it just is so high. And I feel like millennials, not that they were lied to, but we're also kind of lied to about like where hard work will get you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think we're baby millennials. Like we're just on like. We are. Yeah, we are at the right at the cutoff. Of, yeah. Like some sources say that 1995 marks the start of Gen Z. So we're kind of right at the end there. Right. So we kind of, I think, have experiences in both places. I really do, because we're right right at that point, right at that cusp. Yeah, we're still broken, but I think we have a (laughs) little more optimism. I don't know. I don't know. So this is from director Philip Kaufman, who directed the 1978 version. And he has suggested that the pod people can be understood as a political metaphor, saying in 2018, it's as valid now as it was then, maybe more so. Donald Sutherland's pod shriek at the end of the film could be a very Trumpian scream. The way that Trump points to the press in the back of the auditorium and everybody turns, you get that scary potty feeling. There's a kind of contagion going on there. That is really interesting. He went on to say in the same quote, even if how you see like people who've been Republicans their entire lives moving away from it, which means now the voice that's there is so uniform. Like, Mm. it's so extremist, it's so right, it's so one note, and there's not as much, like, diversity within the political parties now, because if you don't shriek, or if you're not of the same mind, everyone turns and yells, and everyone, like, kicks you out, everyone can identify you don't belong anymore. 
That, I think, is similar to also what was probably going on in 1956, regardless of whether or not Siegel realized, like, because of McCarthyism and fear of communism, a lot of the people that were accused of communism and blacklisted and taken out of their political positions were more liberal. And it ended up kind of neutralizing the voices we had in government at that time anyway. Mm -hmm. So again, maybe not consciously was that something Siegel was looking for, but I think that it could also go back there, like the danger of neutralizing those voices in government or also distraction media, like whoever is pointing at somebody else to distract from the fact that there's already been, you know, some shady shit that went on, right? That's scary. (laughs) It's scary. Wow, who'd have thought that the invasion of the body snatchers was so much more than body horror? You would think that that would be the focus, but it doesn't really seem like that was the intention, at least fully. And I appreciate that it's almost, you know, just like that one quote said, the dangerous flora. Like, it's an (laughs) eco-horror type of thing, Uh where it's almost like, if you're thinking about the intention of the pod people... Before humans were here, peace was a thing, and there wasn't conflict, and there wasn't destruction. So is this nature's way of almost taking itself back by saying, if you're going to be here, you need to chill the fuck out, and Mm -hmm. you need to stop arguing with each other, and you need to stop destroying things? Are we too distracted like that? I forget which source said that, but are we too distracted and consumed in our own lives and our own routines to notice when people are losing their individuality? Do we already perceive that as being lost? Very troubling, very scary, spooky. And I almost feel like this idea has been expanded upon just in a more spooky realm, like the fact that possession movies took such a high interest in the early 2000s and the 2010s. Like we stopped seeing alien type stuff and we almost started seeing more spiritual type stuff or religious type stuff. Like the idea that it's not coming from somewhere else anymore. It's already here and it's in our house. Yes. Uh-huh. And we are able to depersonalize and lose parts of ourself, not even through external forces anymore, but just by what's going on inside our own house or our own psyches. So I almost feel like this trend of depersonalization or no emotions or losing yourself to something else that's trying to take over you, like, yeah, just because we haven't had like a Body Snatchers proper remake anytime recently doesn't necessarily mean that that trend has gone away. I think it's just moved to a more insidious and homegrown space. Ooh, Ooh. I just got chills. Homegrown. Okay. That was Invasion of the Body Snatchers. We hope you liked it. I, again, as per usual, liked the movies we watch a lot better after I think we talked about them. Talked about some of their nuances. I thought that was good. And I think it makes me appreciate the faculty more now mm-hmm. that I kind of know what they were drawing off of. I still think I'm partial to the space slugs myself <laughs> over the pods, but that's just me. Oh my gosh. How can you resist those space slugs when they have the face of Mary Beth? <sighs> You're so right. So again, half of this was based on a suggestion. So if you would like to request us to cover any films or whatever, please definitely let us know. We are listening. You can email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com and or follow us on Instagram. That's where we post most of our updates, some polls, things like that. You can find us there also at The Horrors Podcast. And until next time, we're The Horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.